Hello, and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Karine Berzun and Sarah Cohen-Shabbat to discuss their paper entitled Obstetric Violence and Vulnerability, a Bioethical Approach, which is out in the recent issue of IJFAB. Hello, Corinne. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, let's get right into it. Um, I wonder if one of you would like to give a kind of elevator pitch for the listeners about what this paper is about. So essentially, Sarah and I were working on a project around um, obstetric violence, which is really her area of very special expertise, uh, and kind of thinking about it through the lens of vulnerability, which is a category imposed in research ethics that seems to have kind of bled into uh, the treatment of women in general. Uh, and we we kind of thought around whether certain understandings of vulnerability have impacted the prevalence of obstetric violence um, and, and kind of followed through different theoretical approaches to vulnerability and how these may have impacted um, how frequently women are ignored and mistreated in the delivery room. Yeah, I mean, if I can add something, um, yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I this article is part of a very broad research, a philosophical research on obstetric violence, which I am also an important part of it. And I, I mean, I started my my research on obstetric violence um, some years ago uh, because of a personal because of a personal experience, because my second birth, which was, uh, I consider it a uh, violent birth. And then I started to research with the uh, tools that I have, which are philosophical. And then I really got into a territory which was very unexplored. I mean, also the the, the research on obstetric violence was only like being born more or less, but it's more of call, of course, in health sciences, sociology, etc. And this was my philosophical like uh, take on, on this. And and so but I used a lot of, I mean, maybe we could say more about it later, but I mainly use terminological tools, also epistemic, uh, I speak about epistemic injustice and yes, epistemic tools. And I what was um, for me amazing and enriching, very enriching about this meeting with uh, Corinne is that I am not an ethicist and and Corinne is she's she works on ethics on, on on feminist ethics medical ethics and this for me was a very very fresh approach which is of course very important in this in this subject uh, but I, I mean I didn't dare to do it myself uh, and and I think this uh, this was a really really good uh, collaboration that we made together I agree. It was like a very natural kind of synergy between our two areas of study. That's really cool. And I might come back to that and ask you some questions um, about that later, because that sounds really interesting. I think first I wanted to ask you some questions about the paper. I wonder for the listener, um, if you could just sort of explain, first of all, what obstetric violence is. Yeah, well, Yes, I mean, it's uh, 
of course, uh, in short, uh, is this uh, violent treatment that women uh, received in medical uh, scenarios, medical childbirth uh, scenarios. And um, this concept of obstetric violence was born in Latin America. Latin America activists were, uh, feminist activists were the ones who coined this uh, term and also a loss loss against obstetric violence have been made in in places in Venezuela was the first place to uh, to bring a law uh, after after that Argentina Mexico also joined um, but the I mean there's a lot, a lot to say in obstetric violence the concept has been Contested, it has been used as mistreat. It has been also um, known as mistreatment and abuse. For example, the UN and the World Health Organization, who have have recognized this phenomenon uh, lately, they don't want to use so much the concept of obstetric violence. This is a concept which sometimes medical staff it is hard for them. I believe this is a better concept than mistreatment and abuse in a sense that it it puts less responsibility personal responsibility in doctors and medical staff and puts more more responsibility in a system mm-hmm. in a structure which allows violence so this is uh, one also one important thing um, uh, the only the other important thing that I would like to say is that it takes many different forms and of course uh, with um, very p- poor or marginal populations Obstetric violence is more blatant. It's more it, it brutal, it, and it's more more easy. Paradoxically, it's more easy for us to understand it, to see it, to point it out. Um, um, unlike what happens in our countries and in our populations, I say our because I mean that's where Corinne, I, maybe you come from. Um, it's um. The system is much more subtle in the forms in which violence is performed on these women. It's more a question of doing things, um, practices and interventions which are unnecessary and many times done without consent. And also the question of consent there, it's problematic because we know that if we don't recognize even these practices as violent, um, because they are very normalized, it's very difficult to resist them. So the question of violence in these uh, wealthy populations, wealthy scenarios, it's more complicated for us to spot. It's more complicated philosophically to deal with. So for me, what was really remarkable about um, encountering this concept, I, I mean, I come from bioethics. But my specialty was on organ donation policy. Um, and and late-term abortion policy. So I've really been focused on like public policy elements of bioethics. Uh, and this, this felt deeply personal to me in a way that none of the other subjects that I've focused on have, because I do have four kids um, and, I've had, and I've had four births. And every woman that I speak to in any crowd of women, it, it only takes a few minutes before People start speaking about birth experiences, about, you know, pregnancy experiences. It's such a common global, almost no matter which society you come from, which culture you come from, 
Women are so deeply impacted by not being heard and respected during birth um, that I, I find this topic just really resonates and I, I, I feel it deeply and personally. Um, and I think that's fascinating. Like I'm listening now to the Retrievals podcast and I was discussing this with Sarah leading up to, to our talk today, how it just feels so important now that these conversations are being had and we're talking about data gaps um, and we're we're talking more about how women are ignored, how their pain is ignored, um, and that this is even more exacerbated in the delivery room where there's a fetus and there's all these other things that are that are coming into play where it's not even just the woman's voice that's being ignored. It's being like sidelined by this like hyper over concern with the fetus's well-being. Um, and if we think about if we think about medical mistreatment, like you would never you would never tell somebody, you know, that they are being forced to have heart surgery. Like someone could die needing a stent. No one is going to drag them kicking and screaming, knock them unconscious, and force them to have a stent. But when it comes to birth, there there is this tendency of of, of saying, "Well, you're not equipped. You're not thinking clearly." you don't realize the risks to the fetus as if that should totally outweigh uh, a woman's autonomy uh, over her body in that moment. Um, so I, I, do, I do think that this is a, a very good time to be talking about this. And I, I feel like I'm hearing it more and more, which, which is, I guess, a very positive road forward. Yeah, absolutely. That actually makes me want to ask you about the the other kind of main pillar in the paper, which is vulnerability, because um, you're giving a vulnerability analysis, basically, of obstetric violence in this paper. And vulnerability is a very contested term. But we can easily imagine um, being in labor as being at a vulnerable point for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, you're in pain, you're in a process that's not within your or anyone else's control. There's elements of unexpected things happening around you. Then of course, there's the whole obstetric apparatus around you. So what was the um, addition of vulnerability here? What was the analysis based on vulnerability that you wanted to give here? So really the question of vulnerability, when I started looking at this question um, with Sarah, what really stood out for me is the medicalization of, of natural processes in women's bodies so that menstruation is pathological and the pain associated with it needs to be treated rather than accommodated, that childbirth um, is viewed as something that requires medical intervention in instead of communal support at home that emphasizes independent decision making. So I I'm I kind of have an issue with categorizing any woman's bodily function as an inherent vulnerability. I think that that's like therein lies the problem um, where where a woman regards herself as vulnerable in that moment. So it's instead of it being an empowering place where she can state what she wants and express what her needs are and be heard and have choices put in front of her in a way that is clear and explained well and not rushed over um, to say 
to, or the paternalistic treatment of this is what you need and this is what we're going to give you because you are vulnerable in this moment and we're going to help you. That kind of paternalism that comes from the terminology, which I think it is misplaced because these are natural functions of a woman's body. We, we can approach it differently. Um, and of course, there are vulnerabilities, situational vulnerabilities, uh, as Sarah mentioned, in marginalized populations, in the, you know, these experiences are far more prevalent among women of color, women in, um, you know, in, in the global south. This is, this is something that we, that we understand there are very special vulnerabilities involved, but these vulnerabilities are not specific to childbirth. They're not just purely situational. This giving birth does, is not uh, inherently make a person vulnerable in a way that requires paternalistic care. If anything, regarding vulnerability is something that needs additional, we, we write about scaffolding of creating uh, a, a systematic support system that empowers women to make choices um, rather than them being bullied in the name of care. Um, I think that that take on vulnerability is is problematic and that's kind of what we were trying to to address here of course understanding that vulnerability is something that we all possess insofar as we're human and we are subject to the societies and the environments and the lives that we lead um but when the language of vulnerability comes about care and paternalism and intervention and less about mutual um obligations then then I think that we we've kind of gone astray. That's that's great. And I I mean I think I will just just add that I that I think that what also mainly Corinne did in this in this paper is to show um how this vulnerability constructed as as something which infantilizes women has made of it's has created like a snowball in which um, women are recognized more and more as vulnerable and thus less and less like capable of you, you know you cannot give them any medicines you cannot give, you cannot taste on them anything because they are vulnerable but then because of that you start recognizing them as more as more vulnerable and and i think that what we try to make to make in the paper it's also the, this um um putting re putting uh, vulnerability into the context of feminist uh, the feminist uh, philosophical um research on vulnerability which mainly sees vulnerability as a common as a common part of existence of 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 human existence and then uh, tries tries also to say okay this this has not to be part of also of only of women's uh, um, of women's existence and at the moment that we recognize our shared vulnerability we can offer really as Corinne said two different tools which are not the paternalistic common tools for this but more tools of solidarity of really common um, common protection respect uh, yes because of course the argument is not to say women in labor are not to be uh, are, are are strong enough not to be cared, for example. Yes, yeah, so the pain is not vulnerability, or or yes, no, they are they are 
uh, I don't know, maybe even an essentialist kind of uh, saying on women, no, they are like these uh, great uh, goddesses giving birth. They don't need anything, no, but their bodies. And of course not. And of course women need help and complications might come. And this is a vulnerable moment, but that has to be encountered uh, by, again, respect, care, uh, being with. And yes, I think this is a concept of vulnerability and, and protection and respect that we wanted to, to enhance in, in this paper. So one of the movements that, that um, we kind of worked through was what vulnerability would apply to pregnant women. So what makes a vulnerable subject? What makes a patient a vulnerable, you know, a member of a vulnerable population? To be like for a lack of medical knowledge, uh, susceptibility to coercion, these types of, of things. And, and when you work it through, it, none of them really apply. This is, it's a very unique situational uh, vulnerability that can't be generalized from like research ethics or from um, other types of fields within within medicine. And so a special consideration needs to be given here where, where we are acknowledging that it is uh, a time where women require support, um, but but that they are not, you know, they're not a permanent member of a, a of a vulnerable population by virtue just of being a, a birthing subject. So so that kind of like objectification that comes from um, treating a woman as if she's incapable of going through this on her own without medical intervention, um, I, I think has, has kind of shaped the way we see, um, obstetric violence occurring. Uh, you could think like it, that the response to the thalidomide scandal was not, how do we include pregnant women in research safely? It was, let's exclude pregnant women from research. So, you know, that, that kind of like heavy handed approach to women's health, um, I think has, has perpetuated a lot of harm and in that sense kind of fits into, uh, which I found a very, very important contribution from Sarah's research. It fits into this overarching kind of systemic violence against women, um, which, which it often goes unrecognized. And and as as she mentioned, it's very very subtle for for many of us, um, and and that's why I found a lot of this so eye opening because I was like, oh wait, you know, you have to give consent to get an episiotomy. Like yeah. you need to give consent to be given uh, drugs that will hasten your contractions. Like, wow, you know, who who would have thought that we had so, you know, so much uh, autonomy to make choices about our bodies. Uh, even as we're acting as vessels for these new lives. So, mm -hmm. so I found that um, really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Something that I was thinking about while I was reading your paper is that there's, through all the talk about vulnerability, there's, and I've read some of the other literature that you've referenced as well. There's sometimes not a reference about what a person is vulnerable to. And I'm always curious about what it is that we're vulnerable to. So it's interesting in this paper that you're pointing out, like women are vulnerable to the disrespectful actions of other people, but that's 
not the same thing as being vulnerable to pain, as you said, Sarah. Like, yes, of course, in, in labor, you will have pain and you need help with that. But that's a completely different notion of vulnerability here. Like, I don't know. I just see those things as maybe needing to come apart or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the generalized vulnerability, like we are, like we could be mugged. So in that sense, we're vulnerable as, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, creatures walking in the world. Um, But this kind of special category of vulnerability Mm-hmm. where we're doing things that are totally normal, natural, um, and that can be, you know, as, as Sarah mentioned, complications can arise. They're, you know, not to diss the whole medical establishment of childbirth. You know, we know that outcomes are significantly better uh, now than they were 100 years ago. That's that's like not even not even a question. It's more about how ascribing vulnerability diminishes autonomy in that moment um and whether vulnerability as conceived is not having uh the opposite effect that instead of augmenting agency in moments of vulnerability it's diminishing agency in moments of vulnerability i am aware of how this is not very simple mainly in the ethic bioethic context and a medical context no who makes the decision of course there is also there are also questions of knowledge. I think the question of knowledge here is very important and very relevant because I think sometimes when I speak with my students about this and of such violence, and I say, for example, when you get into the hospital, yes, and you come for, a, for example, a heart surgery, and so you don't come and and tell the doctor, you know what, I would prefer you to do the surgery like vertical and not horizontal in my chest, because I think that's better for me. No, there is a, there is one authority who you trust, you trust their knowledge at, 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 to a certain point. But women come to birth in hospitals without a pathology. And they come at least with a certain knowledge, if not with a very good knowledge of what is happening in their bodies. And this, they should be considered being in a totally different position than somebody who comes from heart surgery, right? And in that sense, they, they shouldn't be vulnerable in the sense of you don't know anything or you don't have the knowledge. And epistemic authority here, it's a very important point, I think. I wanted to ask you a question just about um, sort of about this paper, kind of about how you came together, um, which I also wonder is if maybe it's connected to a question about whether or not there were any challenges for you in writing the paper, like, was there any challenge that you faced in blending your two different approaches and methodologies together? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't have like the depth of knowledge of like phenomenology and the philosophy behind, um, behind obstetric violence, which Sarah has been like fleshing out for years and years. And so it's like, I don't even necessarily have the language to fully understand this approach, but but I, I spent a lot of time reading, reading through the works to see the citations are, you know, there's like a whole body of work on this um, that, that Sarah's authored. And, and, and even though I haven't mastered that language, that, that philosophical language, I, I think it contributes so much um, to understanding how we got where we are, why we are where we are. 
uh, and kind of giving like a, a, a lens to, to this perspective, because if we're trying to solve for a problem, um, it's not super helpful to have to have a very limited surface understanding of the problem. Uh, and so I really appreciate the depth um, that went into this uh, kind of philosophical consideration of what's happening to women. No, and for me, of course, it's easier to to respond to this question because, of course, I I, I mean, I mainly brought my already done work on obstetric violence, disinformed coincidences, ideas, and yeah, she was the one to bring, as I said in the beginning, the this ethical, medical, ethical, bioethical approach, uh, informed by feminist also concepts, of course, and it was very super enriching for me. I I. Uh, it's very it's very bad to say that I love this article. <laughs> I'm sorry to say testifying for myself, but I think yeah, I think it's 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 an important one. And 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 of course if if it gets also into a, to the ethics realm, it's it's uh, which is more really more practical, more 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 practical directive. And it's uh, I think it's it's very important to have this kind of work outside there. Yes. Yeah. Policy making. <laughs> And then in terms of challenges, they were significant because, yeah. as we said, there was like a global pandemic that started, I think I was supposed to start like January 1st and by March, the world was shut down. Um, and we live three hours apart by train, like the, the Haifa University and where I live. So the, you know, with public transportation shut down during the pandemic, universities shut down, uh, no in-person classes, no in-person conferences. Corinne had all her children in the house, in the house. And she, yeah, yeah and she my partner a- was in a different country for most of the pandemic. And I was home with four kids. Um, and I, you know, was laid off from my day job. Like it was a whole package of, of stuff. Uh, and then Sarah's and she was dealing with her own, you know, workload and personal life. Like it, it became difficult just because of the situation that we we found ourselves in along with the entire world. Um, but also that was, it kind of put a spotlight on how important this work is. Um, and even, even in a more general way, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, understanding how female academics struggled so much to publish and get their research done, uh, that the publication rate for women decreased dramatically during the pandemic. Whereas that of men increased dramatically during the pandemic as they just like kind of, not to generalize, but that it was like more, I guess, easy to kind of close the door to your office and delve into work um, when the the burden of home is not, you know, squarely on your shoulders. Uh, again, I, I resist kind of making these generalizations, but I think the data backs it up uh, and so much has been said about it. And there's been so much data to kind of show like not to bash male academics but to say that the situations of our lives are so different uh and the pandemic really shone a light on that that where we felt you know maybe beforehand that we'd achieved a sort of equity in health and professional equity um and a shifting of you know household responsibilities that made it more possible for you know women to to progress in their careers and 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 the pandemic kind of said like not as much as you think not as much as you think Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I think the challenges as much as they were, and I can, I can like really distinctly remember like typing away on my computer with like kids screaming in the background and like, you know, not being able to go outside. Like it was, it was for sure chaotic, but it, at this, in the same 
uh, you know, the other side of the coin is that it was even more important and even more impactful. Um, and it felt, and it resonated even more deeply. So I, I think the the outcome, the the final version of the paper, is probably more more fine than it would have been without those challenges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also the reviews really helped us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, our the reviewers were 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 exceptional. Like really allowed. Uh, I mean, I can't I can't speak for you, Sarah, but for me, it allowed me to really really um, clean up my understanding of this concept and, and approach it from a, a much more critical place. Well, that's great. It's always um, really good to hear that. And I think hopefully is encouraging to maybe less um, practiced scholars to hear that reviews can be friendly and helpful, <laughs> not always scary. No, I wouldn't go so far as to say friendly, but definitely helpful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it can be hard. It can be hard. It can be hard to go through a few rounds of review, but that's, you know, that's, that's academic review. It's there to, you know, to make it better. And, and I really did feel that with us that the, that the critique was there to lift it up and not to push it down. Nice. Well, um, I wonder if, there's anything that you really hope, like if there's just sort of like one idea that you really hope that readers will take away either from just listening to this podcast or from reading the paper, what's your sort of takeaway message? I just, I would say this, um, adopting a different idea of vulnerability regarding women and subjects in general, and, and of course, laboring women and going more for like an understanding, a uh, feminist understanding of of how to treat vulnerability and what we deserve in childbirth. And um, yeah, and putting into context, of course, this medicalization of childbirth and, and, and the, 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 yeah, the challenges that it presents and, and how to approach them. Yes. I, I actually, in preparation, have been, was, was listening to another talk um, of Sarah's on shame um, in the context of childbirth, and and you know, reading other research now around data gaps around women's pain in medical situations, uh, and that that kind of deeply embodied experience of women as patients. So I'm I kind of hope I kind of hope that women read this paper. Not that men are not also going to read it. But my the takeaway I would like there to be is that a woman reading this paper um, is able to regard her own experience through a different light. That this shame that women associate with their own bodies, with their with their births, with their with their menstruation, with their pain, that 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 feeling of shame that so many women carry and and make them less. Um, able to stand up and say, no, this hurts. No, I don't want this. No, this is my choice Um, to have the kind of validation that we're allowed to do that and that we have to do that. Uh, And that the expectation is that medical practitioners will listen to us. Um, I hope that this contributes to a growing body of literature um, supporting women in making those kinds of choices without feeling shame and without looking at themselves as difficult, as a difficult patient, as an unwieldy, shrill 
person that needs to be managed. Um, and I think our tendency to regard ourselves that way is is very, very difficult to overcome. Um, so if there's any takeaway I want to come out of this, I hope I hope that it contributes to that kind of shift in perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amazing. Me too. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Sarah and Corinne. This has been super interesting. Thank you so much, Catherine, for inviting us. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Sarah and Corinne's paper linked in this episode's notes, along with a transcript of our discussion. FabGab is hosted and produced by me, Catherine McKay. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. And you can subscribe to FabGab so that you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Bye.